I, um, I want to share this morning on some thoughts I got while I was in Kenya, actually. I was sat listening to Paul share and getting ready for me to share. This is, I don't know when that was. When was Kenya? October? A little while ago, anyway. And, um, and across there, I was thinking about this thing about buildings and the desire in Africa to have a building and then to have some massive speakers to blast everything out into the place that it is. And it's like a big thing to have a big building. And I was thinking, okay, how can I speak into this thing? And, and God led me to this to 2 Samuel 7 that we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But what's, what's fascinating about the whole thing is because, of course, we... The heart of what we hold, or part of the heart of what we hold, is that you go from the inside out. That actually life works better when you start on the inside and allow it to work out, because trying to do it from the outside in just doesn't really work. And of course, when we got our building, that's what we did. That's why the inside was all done and the outside was left to last. Because it, it was deliberate, because it was a picture of what we believe in. We didn't make the outside beautiful first to make it all look good on the outside, and then you come in and it'd be all rubbish because that's not what we believe, how it works. So we make the inside beautiful first, and it flows out to the outside. By the way, if you're here at our carol service, you'll see we've got some beautiful exterior lighting now, lighting all the front of our building up that's new. It's not quite finished. We've got to find a way of lighting the central bit without um, dazzling people, uh, but we'll do that soon. Uh, so we're continuing on that. But yeah, this idea of inside out. Um, but then I thought, oh, well, I best have something to do with Christmas. So um, uh, we're going to call it... Um, Emmanuel, because really what I want to talk about is the fact that God is with us and the fact that God has always wanted to be with us and that despite what you might have thought from reading the Old Testament, that God desperately wanted to be with his people. He never wanted to be separate and he didn't want to be locked away anywhere. Um, so we're going to, well, we'll start here anywhere. A few hundred years before Jesus was born, we read this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel. And then we get to Matthew 1. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the very, the very act of, of God sending Jesus was that it might be with us. But this wasn't a new idea for God, as I'll show you. God being with us wasn't a new thought or a new idea. God had always wanted to be with us. In fact, I'll show you that all through the biblical history, God wanted to be with us. But the actions of human beings meant he ended up behind big walls, often difficult, distant, and difficult to see and interact with. But that was never his heart. And as you read through the biblical history, what you see is that it's not God that hides away and makes it difficult to connect with him. Rather, it's humans that put up barriers for themselves or they run away themselves. But God is not in putting up barriers between him and you. God is actually into taking barriers down. So, of course, part of the Old Testament is about God being distant and setting up boundaries and letting everybody know how holy he is and how unholy the people are. That's part of the Old Testament. And the, generally, and I've said this before, is that a lot of the Old Testament is God going, look, I'm different to you. It's why you have all these laws of this, that, and the other, and all the things they can do and can't do. It's God going, look, I'm different to you. And they have to understand the difference and celebrate the difference. And what happened was that actually through that there became a temple with very strict rules about who can go where and when and one man once a year can actually enter the presence of God and only certain people can go into certain places and 
non-Jews can go so far and then women can go so far and then men can go so far and then and it's all this separation and division and distance and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure God wanted it to last as long as it did. But let's go back to the beginning first of all. Exodus 24. When Moses went upon the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. So let me give you a bit of context. This is Exodus, which, as I've said many times, is kind of... It's really the beginning of the story. Uh, Genesis is the prequel, as far as I'm concerned, about how we get to Genesis, because Genesis is about liberation. It's about being set free. It's about being God going, you're in a mess, you're in slavery, you're suffering, and I want to take you out of that and rescue you and redeem you from that. So the heart of God right at the beginning is one of restoration, rescuing, redeeming, all that sort of stuff. And and this is early on in the story. They've kind of come out of Egypt, and and Moses, who's the leader at the moment, kind of meets with God, and, and you get this idea that it's, there's this consuming fire, there's cloud, it's like it's this big kind of awesome, scary thing that's going on on top of this mountain. But it becomes very clear very quickly that God wants to be present, that he wants to be with his people and dwell amongst them. Because just a few verses later, first of all, he tells them to take up an offering, and then he says, with the money that you've just taken up, the gold, the silver and all that, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. So this is really early on in the story. God's going, I want to be with them. I want to dwell among them and be among them. And that word dwell is really important because it means to settle down. God wants to settle down and be with his people. God wants to be with them, amongst them, all around them. God's heart all along, even at the very beginning, was to be with his people. He didn't want to be distant. Like any good dad, he wanted to be with his kids to enjoy their presence and their relationship. That's what God wanted all along. He wanted to enjoy being with his people. He didn't want to be totally miles away from them. And it's not easy to see from, from, from the English or even in your English Bible or, or those translations, but, but when, when you look into the Hebrew, you find that this idea of dwell and this idea of presence on the mountain, they just mean the same thing. God's basically going, I don't want to be up here on this mountain with just you, Moses, because there's all these people and I love all them as well. Let's find a way where we can both come down the mountain and be all together. I don't want that just one man comes up the mountain and you have this wonderful, nice time with everybody else there. Actually, because I'm so distant and because you're so distant, they get it all massively wrong anyway. Actually, let's all be together. And this, this, the sanctuary or tabernacle is another word the Bible uses that God has them build. It's essentially a way of his presence staying with them. And at this point in the story, it's a tent and there's some specific instruction about how to build the tent and some specific things to put in the tent. And they're all symbolic of who God is and what he's like. But it was never God's desire to be separate. Of course, there was a reason God was up on the mountain in fire and thunder and not with the people. Because if you go back to the beginning, you read this. In Genesis, right at the very, very beginning of the story. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Who creates the first bit of distance? It's not God. Human beings create the first bit of distance. God is with them. He creates his garden. He's walking. He's loving the presence. He's a good dad. He wants to be with his kids. He enjoys being with his kids. But then his kids decide 
that they're going to disobey dad and do some things that God has said is not helpful. Not because dad's a mean, horrible dad, but actually because dad loves his kids. In the same way that as a dad, I love my kids. So there are some boundaries for my kids' sake. Not for my sake, but for my kids' sake. And the kids, because this is what kids do, decide they know better than dad and decide they're going to do what they think is best. And then they find out that dad knew best all along. Surprisingly, we just keep doing the same mistakes time after time after time. But that's really what happened. The kids decide to do things their way and then they become overcome with shame and guilt. So they put distance between themselves and God and they hide. But God was still walking in the garden. God was not distancing himself. And if you know the story, you know there are some consequences to this. No longer can they walk and talk together in the garden. There's a distance between you. But God, of course, as you read quite soon on in the story in Exodus, wants to get back with them. God's finding a way to be back with them. And of course, that's got parallels for us because it's our choices and our thoughts and the lies that we believe that put any distance between us and God. God has never, ever put any distance between himself and you. But you may have put some distance between you and God. But he has never put any distance between you. When we get things wrong, it's our shame and our guilt that we allow to sit on ourselves and our desire to hide that lead us away from God just like Adam and Eve did. But of course, even when we get it wrong, God is always walking with us, close to us, looking for us. And because of Jesus, there is no need for separation and distance because God has already done everything necessary to bridge that gap. You see, the truth is that any distance you feel from God is not on his path. No matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, or whether you know him or don't know him, or whatever you think about him, any distance is not on his path. He is close. He is there and he is with you. He's always walking with you, looking to be with you and enjoying your company. You realise Jesus enjoys being with you. He actually likes being with you. He wants to be with you. He enjoys it. But we always sometimes forget that he's like that and we definitely forget that he's there. So, let's fast forward a few thousand years to the time of David. By this time, the Israelites have settled in Canaan and they've defeated most of their enemies. Despite God letting them know that he'll be their king, they go, yeah, yeah, but, but we want our own king. We want a human king because everybody else has a human king and it seems to work well for them. Again, kids doing what dad says not to do. Dad going, okay, it all goes wrong if you know the story. But they go, we want a king. Okay, you can have a king then. Are you sure you want a king? Oh, we want a king. Okay, I don't think you should have a king. No, we really want a king. Okay, there you go. Because dad's a loving dad. And if you know the story, it starts going wrong with these kings. But David, as king, the first king, oh, it's the second king, because Saul was the first one, wasn't he? David is actually a wonderful king. I mean, David's ace. He gets tons of stuff wrong. I mean, tons of stuff. He commits murder. He commits adultery. He completely misinterprets things God says to him. But he loves Jesus. And he has a heart for God. So God continues to bless him and does all these things. But, but David, at this point, as I'm going to look at in the Bible, is now king. And the sanctuary that God tells Moses to build has been moved around to different places. And then at one point, the Ark of the Covenant, that's like the bit where God's... Uh, God says he actually lives in this ark. That's been moved around and then the Philistines steal it and they run off with it. And so it's all in different places. And eventually, David gets it in his heart to bring the ark back to his home say, which is symbolic of bringing God back into his home. That's what it means. 
But as they're carrying it, but because this heart for God just is so overwhelming, he, he doesn't really read the rules. He just goes, oh, I'm, I'm going to go for it. So he goes for it, and, and they're carrying this ark on a donkey, and the ark falls. And a guy that's there thinks, well, I don't want God to fall over, because he might hurt himself. So, some of you got that joke. So he puts his hand on it and stops it. Instantly dies. David's like, well, that's a bit spooky. I don't want that in my house. So he goes, I know, Obed-Edom, it can be in your house. <laughs> Obed-Edom's thinking, oh, all right, thanks very much. Well, then Obed-Edom, it turns out that this ark's in Obed-Edom's house, and everything Obed-Edom does is blessed. Like everything. His whole household becomes, everything goes wonderfully well, and David's like, oh, okay, I want it back now. So oh, this is the story. You can read it all in some, it's my version of it. But So he goes, okay. Actually, I think I'll have it back now because it seems like it's a good thing to have. So this time he reads the rules, decides to put it on some poles so it doesn't fall off, and they bring it back, and, 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 he, and he builds his... In fact, let's not go too far. 2 Samuel 6, 17. Set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. So, we're back in the beginning. Moses, this is the ark, this is this, this is the altar, this is that, this is the tent, and the tent like is really specific, and you've got to build it in this way. David gets the ark, the presence of God, and decides he's going to build his own tent. So, in other words, he only half reads the rules. But God doesn't seem to be too upset about that. Nowhere can I see that God is too upset that David has put it in his own tent. Hold that thought as background. All sorts of amazing things happen. David dances and leaps in front of the ark in his boxer shorts, um, <laughs> which his wife gets a bit upset about. Uh, because, but you see, his heart's just for Jesus. He loves God, and he's like, I don't care what you think, Michaela. I'm not bothered that you think I'm, I'm kind of debasing myself in front of everybody. I don't really care, because I love Jesus more than anybody else. She doesn't love Jesus more than anybody else, and he's more bothered about his reputation, sadly. But there we go, that's what happens sometimes. So, that's all really background for this. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 to 3. After the king was settled in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So, once again, David has this beautiful heart. He has got this incredible palace by now. And he's looking outside going, Hang on a minute, I've got this beautiful palace. And the God that I love is living in a tent. I don't think that's right. Maybe God needs, excuse me, God needs a palace. And Nathan's his like right-hand man who listens to God for him and helps him hear God. And Nathan goes, yeah, all right, all right. go for it. Sounds a good plan. Why should we? God needs the best, doesn't he? Let's do that. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It seems God's desire for a house is not quite as strong as David's desire for a house. Because David's going, God needs the best house. That's his heart. Oh, God's got to have the best. I'm going to give God the best. I'm going to build him the biggest house ever. But then God goes, well... Go tell David this. I, I'm not sure you're the one to build it for me. I've not lived in a house. I've been moving from place to place. In other words, I've been with you. I've not been limited to one place. 
I don't want to be limited to one place. I'd just like to be wherever you are because I want to be with you. And did I ever ask anybody to build me a house? Answer, no. It goes on. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And when you listen to this, listen to what he doesn't tell him to do. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. God says nothing about a building and everything about people. It's all about people. Everything he says is about the people he loves, how he's been with David, how he's protected him, how he stood up for him, how he's looked after him. Then he goes on and talks about how he will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. When somebody wants to build God a house, God just talks about his people. God's just more bothered about that, it seems. He talks about removing oppression and giving them rest from their enemies. And the only time God talks about a house in these verses is when God tells David he will build a house for him. So David's like, I want to build a house for you. God goes, well, actually, I'm going to build a house for you. But when, David, when God meant house, he meant house in the way we say the house of Windsor, like we use for the queen and her family. In other words, a lineage, a line, a genealogy. I'll build a house for you. I'll build a name for you. I'll build a family for you. God's promise is, I'm going to build a family for you. I'm going to build a line for you. And if you fast forward to Matthew and you read the genealogy, you see that David is ultimately the great, 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 and a few more greats, grandfather of Jesus. I will build a house for you. And it'll be Jesus. God says absolutely nothing to confirm David's thought that God needed a permanent physical building to live in. Nowhere does he say, yes, please, I'd like a house. Nowhere does he give him instructions on how to build this new house. And then God starts to prophesy some more over David. But David, still convinced it seems that a permanent building to God is a great idea, gets completely the wrong end of the stick. These next verses are the example of a prophetic word being given when the person assumes it's about now, but it's actually about the future. Let me read it to you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. David is going, that'll be Solomon then. God's going, that'll be Jesus then. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David here, Solomon's going to build the temple. God says, Jesus is going to build a family forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. That's Jesus. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by human beings, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Jesus didn't do wrong until all the wrong got put on him and then what happened? He was beaten. This is all prophetic about Jesus. But because David is thinking here and now, and he's thinking about his son, and he's thinking about a physical building, he hears it all in the light of Solomon building a great big house. It's fascinating. 
My love will never be taken away from me as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And of course it would do because it was called the throne of David, which, which 500 years later got shown up in Jesus. Do you see how you can misunderstand what God says by only thinking in a certain way? By only thinking in a certain way, you can get completely the wrong end of the stick. And of course, God is full of grace and mercy. So even when you get the wrong end of the stick, he can bless it. And he does bless it. But I'm not convinced that what happens next is God's best. I think it's God's grace. The key point to take away is that as far as I can see in this chapter and in other places, it wasn't the heart of God to be put in a physical building with lots of barriers put between him and his people. And it's interesting to see how David and the people worshipped when the ark was in the tent that David built. Now David was a man way ahead of his time. Like, way ahead of his time. Because the temple had very strict rules and regulations and certain people can go certain places and all that sort of stuff. But when you find that the ark's in a tent, there's dancing, there's musicians, there's no limits. People with disabilities and deformities are all allowed to go. Well, they won't before. This, like David, when he puts it in his tent, he breaks in, he's like, he's, he's literally a thousand years ahead of his time. Because this is 900 and something BC. He's a thousand years ahead of his time. And everything that happens is they're all celebrating, there's total freedom, there's joy, there's everything going on. It's amazing. And actually, David's tent is probably the most significant. Because when the prophets, in, in, in 500 BC, Temple, Solomon built this temple in 500 BC. It all gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Right about there. And, um, and then the prophets start talking. But they start talking about which temple will be restored. And they don't talk about Moses, and they don't talk about Solomon's. They talk about David's. Both Amos and Isaiah say he's going to raise up David's temple. Why? Because David got it right. But then, he got it really wrong. Because... In other words, David's tabernacle was a huge step forward in bringing people together and allowing people access to God. Many of the barriers that, of course, God put up because initially God wanted to make the point that he was different. But actually, just a thousand years before Jesus, it seems, David understood the heart of God that they were all to come crashing down. But then, then he misinterprets the prophetic world and they go backwards. Because then he decides Solomon's going to build the temple. So then they get out, our temple should be built. So they go all the way back to Moses. They get out all the rules about what a temple should look like, how it should be built. But they bling it up, basically, because that's what they do. And they go, they do, they bling it up. Because it's not a tent anymore, it's a building with gold. And it's this massive, huge structure that took like decades to build. David got caught up with a temple and a home and a building. And, and crucially, how things had been done in the past. And when he did that, he actually went backwards. And all these barriers came up again. Because now there's the court of non-Jews, there's the court of women, there's the court of men, there's the holy of holies, there's one man once a year gets to go in, all this sort of stuff. In other words, now there's all these barriers that stop God getting anywhere. The idea of Emmanuel wasn't a new thing God was doing when he sent Jesus. 
it was the same thing in a new way. God with us was not a new thing in Jesus. God has always wanted to be with us. And all through the Bible and all this, you see that David is way ahead of his time. And actually, if he'd have maybe heard it differently, and of course, I don't, I don't know that he could hear it differently. I'm saying this in the light of knowing what happened with Jesus and all the prophecies and all the New Testament in 2,000 years. So I don't, I don't think he could have heard it differently. But looking back, you can go, oh, okay. Maybe you hit something. And then, and then he went backwards. So this is the challenge for us. When I get there. God has always been doing the same thing, but in different ways. And there is a danger that we assume God is going to do what God's going to do in the way that God did it. But God will not do what God did in an old way, because there might be a new way. And there's a real danger that you hear God and assume that means this way, when maybe God means a different way. And I, want, I, I felt like it was really important, even as we come to the close of this year and start to move into another one, that we remember there are always new ways for God to do the same thing. And just because he did it one way, don't mean to say he's going to do it that way again. And often we miss it because we already predecide how God is going to do something. And then we get upset and say he hadn't done it. All the while missing how he did do it, but we were not open to it. And then the other lesson to close with is whether we are those who bring down the barriers or put them up. Are we people who make it easier for others to connect with Jesus? Wherever they're at on their journey with him, or do we make it more difficult? Are we those who bring down walls or do we put up walls? It seems clear to me that the heart of God is always to bring down walls, always to make it easier for people to come to know him and to understand his heart for them. It's always easier. And that has some big challenges, I know, in our culture and our society. But the heart of God is to bring down walls. God did not make it difficult for people to come near him. God did not make it difficult. He didn't put barriers up and he didn't ban people. or None of that. God welcomed people. And you only have to read what Jesus did and that we met with to see that. Because everybody Jesus interacted with was on the, out, the edges of society in his day. Pretty much everybody. So that must say that anybody on the edges of our society... That's where he'd be. And that's where we should be. Not putting walls up, but making it easier. But remember above else that he is with you. He will never and has never left you nor forsaken you. You may not have felt him and you may question why certain things have happened if he was there. But in spite of all those questions, he was and is Emmanuel. And that can never change. It did never change and it will never change no matter what. Even if other people, through their mistakes and misunderstanding, put barriers, the truth is, he's always been Emmanuel. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Thank you. I thought you wanted a drink of water. You were reminding me about communion, weren't you? <laughs> Thank you. I was like, yeah, you can get a drink of water. Why are you asking me? (laughs) 
I know it doesn't always feel like he's with us, but what it feels like, frankly, is irrelevant. Because the truth is that he is. And your feelings are simply a temporary, momentary sense of time. Truth remains forever. He is with us. And he has never made it difficult for you to be with him.